you'd open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I've entitled this message, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. O Come, Let Us Adore Him. As we reflect on the incarnation this Christmas weekend, I want us to look this morning yet again. We, we looked on Christmas Eve at just some observations that we can make about the coming of Christ. And as I was preparing for the Christmas Eve service, Luke chapter 1 really grabbed me. And there's so much here, I thought it'd be better to wait till today. But I want us to look at this. And as we jump in and read this passage, why don't we pray that, uh, you know, it's one thing that we gain information about the incarnation. It's another thing for these truths to grab us, isn't it? And uh, why don't we pray that, that this would be worshipful, that we would actually not just see the information, but that we would be compelled to respond to God in an attitude of surrendered submission before him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, as we look at this tremendous passage about the miracle of what happened to not just Mary, but Zechariah and Elizabeth, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be amazed and, Lord, that we wouldn't just be informed, but, God, we would be compelled to worship you. Lord, please be with us. I pray, Lord, you'd be my strength and my weakness. And I pray, Lord, that uh, in my own heart, God, that, that I would be worshiping you even as I seek to teach this to others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So why don't we read, starting um, all the way back up, Luke 1, 67, and we read, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now pause right there because I want you to get the sense of what's happening. The angel had come to Zechariah, who was a priest, and, and in the beginning of Luke 1, it was revealed to him by Gabriel that they were going to have a child, but similar to Abram and Sarah, they were advanced in age. And what I love about Luke 1 is it describes Zechariah and it describes his wife as godly people. And yet he was overwhelmed with the temptation not to believe what the angel was revealing to him, that he was going to have a son that would come in the spirit of Elijah. And it was a prophecy. It was a statement that the angel was giving him about John the Baptist. John the Baptist would come through them. And, and, and he looks and he disbelieves. And the angel says, because you don't believe, you're not going to be able to speak. So he comes out of the temple and the people are looking at him, and he can't talk. He can't talk, and, and God doesn't open up his mouth again until this point. So now as he's speaking, you got to imagine what has been going on in his heart and in his mind all this time that the Lord has not allowed him to talk. But now, here it comes. And Zechariah speaks, and blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, 
will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What a remarkable passage and what a remarkable scene as to what God was promising him, what happened. I mean, Elizabeth believed he was overwhelmed with how in the world is this going to happen? And can't we relate to that? And aren't you thankful, though, that even people that would be looked at as blameless in the scriptures, we see examples of those very same people that struggled with faith at times. It gives hope for all of us of the grace of God that he doesn't leave us. He keeps working. But I want us to look today at four just observations about the incarnation, four ways in which we should be compelled to worship God this Christmas season. On the, the second day of Christmas, you could say, the first one is he has visited us. As I went through this passage last week, I started noticing about 12 or 13 observations from verse 67 all the way down to what we read. And immediately I was thinking that'd be hard to have 12 points, you know. I've done it before, but it's not the most effective way to present it. And, and I looked at it and I started, and you could group it differently. But it, for me, as I started putting it up and writing it out, it started to come together in four groupings. Four groupings that really grabbed me. The first one was, he has visited us. And you see that language in verse 68, and you're going to see it later. He says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And, and the first thing I want you to see under this first point, he has visited us, is that it teaches us about the character and the heart of God. It teaches us about the heart of God. For he has visited us. I wondered, I was excited to look at this word. I had no idea what it was going to be. And when I looked at it, I had a preconceived notion of what I thought I would find. And it was a lot different than what I thought I would find. The word speaks greatly to the heart of God as he looks towards lost humanity. And, and the word means to look upon with mercy, favor, and regard. It's interesting because it, 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 I was looking at, uh, if I can find it real quick, one of the verses, the, the New Revised Standard Version, look how it, it states it. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people. It's interesting. It doesn't emphasize the visitation of God, it emphasizes the looking favorably. So you've got two different components. The majority of translations translate it, he has visited us, but here's what you gotta see. He has looked favorably upon us, thus he has visited us. Does that make sense? It's the way in which God regards us that prompts his saving activity, which is a beautiful way to look at who God is we think of God and we 
remember the passage in Sunday school when we were kids in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But here we see that not only is his love on display, but it's his mercy, his mercy, the mercy of God. The mercy of God is, is definitely here, and we see the heart of God. It, it, it's, it's, it's the picture, and in, in even when Mary praises God in, in chapter 1, she mentions mercy three times in verse 50 of Luke 1, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And in verse 54, listen to what she says. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And then in verse 58, it it mentions the word mercy again. It says, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. So we see it the mercy mentioned, I, I love it because it's mentioned he visited us, and you say, well, why is the mercy idea prevalent within his visitation? Well, look at verse 72 of Luke 1. It says, to show it the, the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And now go down to verse 78. Look at verse 78. You see it in verse 72, but in verse 78, it says, because of the what? The tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. Isn't that awesome? You see here that he mentions the visitation of God. And and here you go, okay, wait a minute. This is Zechariah. Is he speaking about John the Baptist Or is he speaking about Jesus? Well, I think you're going to find that the majority of everything that he says here is is referring to Christ. It's referring to the role that God has for John the Baptist to be a part of a bigger plan, to be a part of the story of redemption. And so what do we see in verse 78? Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So the word visit means look favorably, and the context reveals what? That he's looking favorably with mercy. He empathizes. He he sees us in our condition. He sees us in the consequences of our sins, and he's moved to act to relieve our situation. I love the word tender in verse 78. It's the word that means speaking of the type of mercy that God has for us. It's inward affection, compassion, pity, and love. But when we think about the wonder that God has visited us, it not only speaks about his heart, but it also speaks about his action. It speaks about his action. He sees us with mercy and compassion, but he acts upon it. He's moved with it. When we think of the incarnation, the passage that kept coming to my mind that I'll mention here in a minute is Philippians chapter 2, where we see Jesus in the glory of heaven humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, And we see that he was moved out of his love and out of his mercy, and you've got the mystery of the Godhead and the role that 
the Father, the Son, and the Spirit play within our salvation. But you see within the mystery of all of that, the Godhead moved by mercy and love towards creation. And you see the character and the heart of God, but you see the activity of God. And the activity of God, I was looking at a passage that uses the same word, he has visited us. And I thought it was appropriate. I'm not gonna read every verse to you, but I wanna mention the text. It was in Luke chapter seven, verses 12 through 16. And it's the story where we find that, that God worked gratefully. And, 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 and a man who, it says, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, Luke 7, 12, and she was a widow and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer and the bear stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. And listen to this, in verse 16 of Luke 7, fear seized them all and they glorified God. And listen to how they glorified God. A great prophet has arisen among us. And they would have been speaking about the prophet that Moses prophesied about when he said in Deuteronomy 18 that a prophet greater than me is going to come right? And so they, they saw this and they go, wait a minute, this is who the scripture speaks of in Deuteronomy 18. And now what do they say? And God has visited his people. Wow. It, it, Jesus showed that same mercy, compassion, love, and power, but moved to activity to do what? To raise this man from the dead. So when you think of the word visitation, you're dealing not only with the revelation about the heart of God, you're dealing with the revelation about the activity of God because he acts out of his character, he acts out of his mercy, and that's exactly what you see with Christmas. He has visited his people. So what is the appropriate language when we think about Jesus coming to this earth, being born in a manger? being born in Bethlehem. He has visited us, revealing not just his mercy and love, but his willingness to come to be the God-man to die in our place. He has visited us. The tender mercy of our God. I love verse 78. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. You know what's fascinating? I didn't know this, but I thought it was worth sharing with you. The word sunrise has like a double meaning. And, and, and scholars are baffled because the word can literally mean shoot and the word can mean star. And it's a beautiful description of Messiah because we learn in the Old Testament that he would be the shoot from Jesse and that he would be the star from Jacob. And so when we think about the sunrise, it ought to thrill us because, again, it points to the incredible saving activity of God in Jesus Christ. The, the number two, though, not only has he visited us, but number two, he has fulfilled his promises. He has fulfilled his promises. And look at how this works itself out. If you look at this passage, you're going to see this idea of fulfillment. Fulfillment is everywhere. He starts out in verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. But then he uses this language that is like promise fulfillment. 
He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And you may think, well, that's interesting. Well, it's actually a promise because it says in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And then you go down to verse 72 to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Again, the word promise, anytime you see the word covenant, you're dealing with promises. You're dealing with the Davidic covenant. You're dealing with the promise made to Abraham in verse 73. And shouldn't that ring a bell to our minds and our hearts as we've been studying Hebrews 11? Because what have we learned? That God is faithful and we can trust in his character, in his promises, and in his power. And I love this because Luke 1 here is, is referencing, okay, what are the promises that have been made? The promise to David, the Davidic covenant, the promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And you can make a case that he's sort of subtly alluding to the new covenant and what he says in the last few verses. So the point being is that we celebrate the incarnation and we celebrate that God has visited us. We celebrate that God has kept his promises to us. God is a faithful, promise-keeping God. And so when we think of this promise made to Abraham or David, we, we think about the promise. Do you remember the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that was made to David? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God is faithful to keep his promises. And so many of these promises are already, he's already fulfilled them in one way, but not yet. He's still gonna fulfill them fully in the future. We see in Psalm 132, 17, there I'll make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, all of these things, and that's why Revelation says in chapter 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And you may be thinking, well, amen, that's wonderful. That's the promises, but, but think about it. We've been looking in Hebrews, and we've been seeing that God reveals himself in his word, and he's faithful to keep his promises. Even in Galatians 3.16, we see how God is faithful through the promise he made to Abraham and the seed promise. What does it say there in Galatians 3.16? Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So God, when he called Abraham and he says, look, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to give you a blessing. And, and what does he speak of? He speaks of, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So often at Christmas, we think of the Bible and what it says about Jesus beginning in Matthew and beginning in Luke. We, we, we don't think about the fact that, no, Christmas is the reminder that God is a covenant-keeping God, that God is faithful to keep his promise. I loved it because I was thinking, you know, how did God reveal 
his promises. He says in this text, he mentions the fact of how this worked. He, he says, and he raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. He spoke by the mouth of the prophets. And I was reminded in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where it says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have these promises, but God has revealed those promises to us in the scripture. And we can trust them. We can believe in them. But, but think about it. Here we are in a study on Hebrews, and Christmas reminds us of everything we're learning, that we can trust in the character of God. And, and Christians, so many promises that we can cherish are yet to be fulfilled to us, aren't they? They're promises that relate to the future. They're promises that relate to what God's going to accomplish for us in Jesus. And what does Christmas remind us of? It reminds us of the fact that we can take it to the bank that God is good to keep his word. We can take it to the bank that everything God promises us will be revealed in the future. We can take it to the bank that we don't have to fear death. We can take it to the bank that he is preparing a place for us. We can take it to the bank that there's no way we can fully imagine all that God has prepared for us in Jesus Christ. So he has visited us. He has kept his promises to us. You know, it just keeps getting better and better as you walk through here. He has saved us. He saved us. And, and here I want us to see yet again that if we don't see the link between the manger and the cross, we'll never understand the gospel. A lot of people don't see that connection. They can deal with the fact that Jesus is born in a manger, but they don't really know how to process the fact that Jesus died on a cross. But look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has what? Visited and redeemed. Can't understand God's visitation apart from his redemption. You can't understand God's redemption apart from his visitation. The incarnation and the cross are two doctrines that, are, and that can never be taken apart. And, and what we see here is, is that these words that he uses, he uses redemption and he uses salvation to describe what God has accomplished in his coming to set us free. The first one is the word redeem. It's the act of freeing or releasing. It's the activity of God's deliverance. He's delivered us. He's ransomed us. We think about the children of Israel and their redemption from Egypt. And like we mentioned just at the, Lord, at the Lord's Supper on Christmas Eve, we think of the redemption we have in Jesus through the new covenant that he brings. A new covenant and a freedom now, not from bondage to Egypt, but freedom from bondage and enslavement to sin that Jesus has brought to us. He's redeemed us. He also uses the word salvation here. And this word salvation, it, he speaks of in that one phrase, the horn of salvation. And I was fascinated to learn that when he speaks of the horn of salvation, it so often is tied to the Davidic house in the Old Testament. And you go, well, why is that important? Because it's a reminder that God fulfills his promises. 
because God had promised that the salvation seed would come through the line of David. And so the horn of salvation was a picture of his mighty power and his delivering ability to work through Messiah. So this word salvation speaks of deliverance from danger. In the text, he mentions this deliverance from enemies. And when you look at this, you think about the past, I thought of 1 Samuel 2.10 as I was looking at cross-references. It says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You see, in the Old Testament, when God gives the promise, in Genesis 3.15, we've been looking at this in our study in Hebrews, and you've got the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And all through the Bible, what do you have? You have the, the seed of the serpent, all those who've rebelled in wickedness towards the things of God are always at war with those who are the spiritual seed of the woman. Why? Because those who've looked to God find out that this world is not their home. This world's not gonna love you. If it loves you, it's only because it sees the fact that you love the world also. But what do we find? There's always animosity and there's always this, this rift that goes between the people of God and the people of the world, but God ultimately will tear down all the enemies. But the ultimate enemy is not people. The ultimate enemy is Satan and sin and death. <laughs> and what has God done through the cross in which he comes to visit and redeem his people. He's shown us that he is the one who's the victor over all the enemies that come against him. And today we can celebrate because the incarnation reminds us that not only has God visited us, not only has God fulfilled his promises to us, but God has saved us. He has saved us. He's delivered us. He has brought the horn of salvation to us. I was thinking... That, that's amazing because, you know, if, if somebody hears the word and the terminology that, you know, you are set free, you are now assured of peace before God eternally because of Christ, you think about, wait a minute, that's pretty strong words. How can we really stand on that? And that's why it's such a powerful description here of the redemption that Jesus brings, the salvation that he offers but this morning, I want to look at one more with you. And it gets so exciting because uh, the final thing I want you to see is that we find in this text that he has lavishly blessed us. He has visited us. He has kept his promises to us, number two. He has saved us, number three. But this text speaks about that he has lavishly blessed us. You know, I was thinking about uh, at the Christmas Eve service, so often we have so many family members. And uh, I've got a close friend growing up. Um, it's good to see you, Bob. And uh, he's, he's preached here before, but uh, Bob's from Chattanooga. And uh, a lot of people from all over the place. There were people from Georgia. There's people from Georgia here right now. 
And, uh, and if you go up to people and say, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Atlanta. Where are you from? I'm from Montgomery. Where are you from? I'm from Chattanooga. But isn't it, isn't it fun? You go, wait a minute, they're not from here. Because, you know, when we thought about visitation, it not only reveals the heart of God and the activity of God, but it reveals the deity of Christ. And you say, why? Because it says, it speaks of he's visiting us from on high. I love that. It speaks of this is not his normal abode. He's coming to you from afar. And when we look at this passage, again, it reminds you of the beauty of the eternality of Jesus, that he's one in substance, one in nature with the Father. There's never a time that he was not. But what has he done? He has revealed himself to us. He has come. He has humbled himself. He has come. And that reminds you of the blessings, the blessings the, the, the lavish blessings, you may be thinking, why are you using a word like lavishly? Well, it's a word that I wouldn't know anything about apart from the scripture. The first verse I want you to look at is Ephesians 1.3. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I know, and, and we can say it, and, and we all can understand it. Maybe the younger ones can't, but we realize that the greatest present that we can receive at Christmas is Christ. But we can all relate to the struggle with that because as kids, we probably had a misconception of what Christmas was all about. And we really wanted those presents more than anything else. And uh, I remember as a kid, I always uh, there would be a few of my friends that I felt like they got way Way, they got way too much stuff. It was like they just couldn't figure out how to stop giving my friends presents. And one kid, he'd just get presents. And I mean, I'd be like, what'd you get for Christmas? And it took like three hours to tell everything. And I was just thinking, that's not fair. He got all these gifts. He got all these presents. Like, what's up with that? But, but it really is exciting when you realize that it's not about materialism. It's not about earthly things. But when you start thinking about the language and the, and the analogy of presence, and you start going, wait a minute, look at the blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ because of the incarnation. It's a game changer. And you go through this text, and one way to group these is not only through his visitation, through his uh, promise fulfillment, through his salvation and redemption, but the last one is, is look at the blessings that Messiah brings through his coming. And look at them with me. You see, Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 puts it this way. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then he says in verse 8, which he lavished upon us. You know what that word means? It means to be in excess to exceed in number or measure. And then it means to be more than enough. <laughs> I love that. The blessings we have in Jesus Christ are to have more than enough. It's more than enough. And look at some of these with me. Like you could pick out so many different ones throughout this list. And I just started looking at some of these realities. The first one that uh, really grabbed me we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. You could say deliverance is a blessing. I grouped that up under salvation. Of course, it's a great blessing. But then look at the next phrase. We might serve him without fear. 
Think about that. You go from being an enemy of God, as Ephesians 2 states, and the scripture says the grace that Jesus gives to those who trust in him is so amazing and so shocking that now we are enabled to serve God without fear. We don't have to fear him. We can come before a holy God because of the wonder and reality that Jesus Christ takes our place at the cross, that Jesus lived his life for us, that, that we have a substitute, one who is now our mediator, one who stands in our place, one who's our advocate, one who now has imputed righteousness to our account because of the work that he's provided, one who's brought us into right standing with God the Father. And now we don't have to fear, we can serve him, but just keep going through these. This list is, uh, is beautiful and you could come up with more than I'm gonna give you. The ne- Look what he says in verse 75. In, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now think about this. We can serve him without fear in holiness and in righteousness because we've received an imputed righteousness, and now through the enablement of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can live holy and righteous. This is exciting because he alludes this to the Abrahamic covenant in the verses you look at there. If you go back to verse 72, 73, verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You know what's exciting? Is that this is giving hints that the Abrahamic covenant, because through this child, all the families of the earth would be blessed You see, it's looking towards the day of the new covenant. And what have we learned about the new covenant in Hebrews? That the new covenant really changes things. If you got your Bible or you want to turn really, really quick with me, go to Jeremiah. And I want you to think about how this all lines up. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. And listen to what it says. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then he goes down to verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. And so as we look at this passage, We think back to the promise and fulfillment that in Christ, he is our holy substitute and by his grace, he works his life out of our life and begins to make us holy in our behavior as a a blessing of his grace. But not only that, in righteousness, you keep going here, one you could list is the knowledge of salvation. He speaks of the knowledge of salvation that John the Baptist would give to give knowledge of salvation to his people. I think that could be referring to John the Baptist, that he's speaking about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or if he's speaking about Jesus, Jesus clearly gave knowledge of salvation to his people. So either way you go there, it's a knowledge of salvation that becomes a blessing 
of knowing Christ. And just think about it, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his will. And then he goes on, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Another blessing that you could list out here is not only service without fear, not only holiness and righteousness and knowledge of salvation, but light and peace to guide ourselves into the way of peace. We experience the light of the world. We experience the peace that he brings. I remember when in the Gospel of John, when when Jesus heals the blind man, and so often when he revealed the seven I am statements, he would do a physical miracle to point out a spiritual reality. And what miracle did he do when he revealed that he was the light of the world? He healed a blind man, a blind man that hadn't seen the light of the day and the light of the world. And he sees the light now that he can see, and Jesus turns around and he says, look, I want to make sure you understand that I am the light of the world, that there's a far greater reality than just having sight to see human things. I'm the one that gives you light. And under Jesus and in Jesus Christ, because God is with us and because we're now in union with him, do you realize today that these things can be a reality, that we can serve him without fear, that by the grace of the Holy Spirit and the enabling of Jesus, we now can walk in holiness and righteousness, that we can walk in the knowledge of salvation and the knowledge of his will, that, that we can walk in the light because he is in the light. We're, we're in him. We, we now, he is light, and we can walk in his peace, and we can experience peace of God and the peace with God. We can be at peace with other people. Why? Because of the blessings that he's lavished upon us through the incarnation and the work that he brings. So this morning, how does this compel us as we leave from here? I pray that we don't have a weekend of the year that we think about the incarnation and then put it on the shelf for the rest of the year. But as Christians, this is a message that should be before us all the time. So what do we do with it? He has visited us. He has fulfilled his promises. He has redeemed us, saved us. He has lavishly blessed us. I pray that our response this morning would be, I believe what Paul's response was when he thought about the miracle of the gospel. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. When we think about let every heart prepare him room, I think about what Paul says in Ephesians 3 where he says, Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. Christ at home in your hearts in all areas. So today as we, as we go into the new year, I pray that uh, we wouldn't just say, hey, we celebrate Christmas because of Jesus, but we would chew on the implications we would look at what Christ has done and we would ask that question, so what? What, what? What's the response? The response enabled by grace is not only to depend and trust on him for our salvation, but to submit and surrender our lives to him and to offer up our bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God. And you say, well, how can you do that? Because of the lavish blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. We can come not out of fear, but we can come boldly and with confidence through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can offer up to him because of his enabling grace, that which is pleasing to him. So Merry Christmas. I pray that uh, you'll have time even this afternoon, tonight, maybe laying in bed, maybe laying down for a nap. I hope you get one. To reflect on what Christmas is all about. And to really chew on the implications in your own life. To look at how, how, how is this supposed to affect me tomorrow morning when it's a, a really dull and mundane day, the 27th, the dreaded 27th, or the dreaded January 5th of next, you know, in the next couple of weeks. You get into those early days of the new year, but I want you to ask yourself, wait a minute, the implications of the incarnation change everything if by God's grace we have eyes to see what he's done for us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you, Lord, for how you worked. And God, I pray that uh, we would just get a glimpse in our hearts of what this means for us. Lord, I pray today that, that there's not anybody here that would go through the Christmas season and yet not understand your visitation and your redemption. I pray, Lord, today from the youngest to the oldest, that every heart has depended and trusted on Jesus. Lord, just crying out to you in their heart, believing on you to save them. I pray, God, that that would be true of everyone here. Lord, help us as Christians never to get bored with the incarnation. I pray, Lord, that we would truly meditate and be in awe of the implications to our day-to-day. So, Lord, I pray just as Paul came to the conclusion of the therefore of our lives is to just lay up our lives before you. We thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. If you'd stand with me.